Good morning, church. Um, if you're able, please stand to show reverence to the Lord as we join to hear in his word. Um, our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Exodus, Exodus 36, 1 to 7. Bezalel and Eholiab and every craftsman in whom God has put in skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Eholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord has put skill. Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They kept, they still kept bringing him free will offering every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of tax on the sanctuary came each from the tax that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave order, so Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Our New Testament reading is Philippians 4, 2 to 9. I entreat you, I entreat you, you ODI, and set a key to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, what is true, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy to be praised, think about these things. For you have learned and you have received and you have heard and seen me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's a blessing to be here again this morning, particularly uh, because I didn't have a voice yesterday. And so I prayed. I said, Lord, I need a voice for tomorrow. And I woke up, and I was clear as a bell, but I still only got like 80% of my voice. So please pardon me if I sip some tea as we uh, go through our message today. One more thing. I've got a, a brief picture. I just want to, uh, Pastor Seda mentioned that we are celebrating our 10th anniversary. So, so this is a birthday cake. This is a birthday float for a homecoming uh, celebration that we had. And we are celebrating our 10th year on campus. And the big news, thank y'all. Um, and the big news is that we're having a, a wonderful banquet this April, April 20th, 2024, um, over at Mapledale Country Club. And we want you to come and, 
and join us and have a good time. And we're going to have a wonderful guest speaker. We're going to have some entertainment. We're going to have some good food. Um, so come. We're going to be uh, registering outside. If you want to come and join us, please do that. But we want uh, all of our friends and family to join us uh, and celebrate just a, a wonderful thing that God has done uh, through this church, through the ministry of RUF, and uh, with the students at Delaware State University. So let's pray, and we'll get into God's Word. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you that um, you are a faithful and good God, and you are sanctifying us, Lord. You have saved us, and you are sanctifying us uh, to be an excellent and perfect church. And Father, I thank you uh, just that you are using uh, just the people here, the individuals here, Lord, uh, but your word and your spirit, you're, you're bringing us all together into a perfect and wonderful unity. And in Christ's name I pray, amen and amen. So uh, we mentioned the Thanksgiving dinner this week. I'm definitely looking forward to the Thanksgiving dinner. It is definitely a highlight on my calendar every year and also on my students' calendar. Uh, they're very excited about it. We had a wonderful time here last year. Um, and I've heard that so many of people have signed up for the Thanksgiving dinner that we don't even know where to put people anymore. That's what I've heard. So uh, we need more turkeys and we need more room. We need more uh, just good times. I'm looking forward to this so much. It's an exciting and appropriate thing for us to celebrate Thanksgiving together as a church. Am I right? Yeah. Amen. Amen. In some ways, the church dinner, maybe some of y'all are looking forward to the church dinner more than your home dinners, right? Some of y'all are a little bit wary about your crazy uncle who's going to come and tell you that the Cowboys are the greatest team of all time. <laughs> Some of y'all are worried about your crazy aunt that's going to come and try to uh, convince you of all of her political views all, all day long. Some of y'all are worried about your kids that are going to bring home boyfriends and girlfriends that you don't like <laughs> and that you hope that you never see them again. You know, we're going to have a great time this, this Thanksgiving dinner at our church. But it's not going to be perfect, right? There's still going to be some oddities that go on, right? Some of y'all are still going to be a, a little bit wary of that cultural dish that you're not quite, a, you know, familiar with. You're going to steer clear of the, you know, the, the not American side of the table. And some of our not American friends, you're going to steer clear of the soul food and all the macaroni and cheese and stuff that my family is going to bring. <laughs> old people are going to sit with old people. Young people are going to sit with young people. You know, we're still going to have a little bit of a racial divide in our, in our Thanksgiving dinner. It's not going to be perfect, right? It's not going to be perfect, but it is going to be wonderful. And I know some of you guys in here, you're not going to eat the way you want to eat because you don't want to embarrass your wife. <laughs> it's going to be a wonderful and great, great time. But it is going to be a realization that even though we are a good church, can I say that? Can I say that we are a good church, that we are a church that loves Jesus and that we, we are a church that seeks to faithfully proclaim the word of God and the glory of God to Dover and abroad. But we haven't made it yet, right? We're not the perfect church that God has called us to be. Paul begins the book of Philippians in chapter 1. And he says this, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
Paul ends this epistle by bringing us back to this statement. The Philippian church is exceptional in their love for Paul while he's been in jail. They're exceptional in their love for another. But still, God has so much work to do in this Philippian church. God has much sanctifying to do amongst these people. And the same can be said for us. God wants to, us to be a city on a hill in Dover, a place where there's no hills. It's a tall task. In today's text, we learned that God is not only sanctifying us individually, but also shaping us as a community into a church that is more peaceful, thankful, and excellent. So how does God empower our work, our thanks, and our thinking to bring this about? The first thing we see in verses 2 through 3 is that we are a church that tarries together or works together. Ironically, Paul's teaching on how to grow as an excellent church does not begin with peace. It doesn't begin with, oh, have wonderful Thanksgiving dinners. He actually begins with strife in the church. He begins with these two women, Yodia and Satiki, that are having this disagreement in the church. We find out that Philippi, like every other church that's ever existed, has some problems. They're not perfect. They're not blameless. Even though they have been made perfect by God, God is still shaping them and molding them to be like Jesus. And Paul encourages him in verse 2, he says, he says, tells them to agree in the Lord. He tells them to agree in the war. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what the disagreement is about. We don't know whether or not it's about what color the church pew should be or any of the other things that churches like to disagree about. But we know that it's serious enough that these two women who have worked together, who have worked side by side with Paul and this great uh, church person that we know that is Clement, we think that he's one of the early church fathers, that they have become divided. They have become one of the long list of people in the Bible who have become immortalized as sinners. Everything they've done good. We get to remember them as people who had disagreements. However, Paul does not suggest to throw them out of the church. Just get rid of them. Let them go to another church. Send them down to the church down the street. He doesn't say, oh, you know, just, just take them off the servant team or, you know, forget about them. They'll get over it. Paul asked for the church to help them. To help them, to love them, to come to their side and help them settle their, their disputes. Paul can ask this because he understands who the church is for. The church is for sinners saved by grace. The church is not for perfect people. The church is for people who are becoming perfect by the power and work of Jesus. We have all come here not to proclaim our own holiness, but to grasp onto the holiness of God found in Jesus Christ as our only and one hope for our salvation. We are here all pleading 
for help from God and help from one another. God has given us the fellowship of believers in the church to help us become perfect, excellent, and holy, not by our strength, but by the strength of God's spirit. God has placed us here to help one another. We also read that God has placed us here side by side. We read that these two women have helped Paul in the ministry of the gospel. Perhaps they were instrumental in leading the very people that Paul is asking to help them to faith to begin with. They were a team. They were a family. But they were still sinners in need of grace. We don't know if they ever worked it out. But we do know that God still loved them, even in their difficulties. In verse 3, Paul says that their names are written in the book of life. Despite their current shortcomings, their faith was genuine. Paul has no doubt of their salvation. Just because you don't like somebody in church don't mean they ain't saved. Just because you disagree with somebody's theological position doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't still love them. While these women are humbled by Paul, they are also honored by Paul. They are sinners, but their names are in the book of life. What is the book of life? We learn more about the book of life from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says this, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and his angels. What do we learn here? We learn that Jesus is in complete control of the book of life. While these ladies serve the Lord in a mighty way, they didn't write their names in the book of life by their service. Their names were written and preserved in the book of life by Jesus. You know, I've kind of become my family's historian. That's a good or a bad thing. You know, you start to find all kind of weird things about your family, but I found some amazing things as well. And one of the facts that I found about my family uh, was that my grandfather, my great-grandfather, he uh, was born on a volcano in the Caribbean, and he came here in 1905 to New York City. And soon after that, he met his wonderful wife, who was from Delaware, and they had a little boy, and he was my grandfather. And the first thing they did with that little boy was take him to the Church of England and have him baptized by the priest there. And I saw his baptism record, and I saw my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother's handwriting. I saw the people who had sponsored them as people who loved Jesus and knew Jesus and wanted their son to know Jesus. And I felt the covenant love of God, the covenant faithfulness of God in that moment. Their names were in this book, and it was a book of life to me. And even in that book, even though it's not the book of life, I know that Jesus is the author of the true book of life. Is your name in the book of life? Has your name been written by Jesus or are you trying to forge your name in your own book of life? How can we agree with one another more? 
How can we look to one another more for help? How can we be a part of bringing unity to this church and to this community? Until you've been reconciled with God and your name has been written in the book of life, you almost have no chance of being reconciled with anyone else. Second thing we see moving on is that not only are we a church that works and tarries together, we are a church that gives thanks together. We see that in verses 4 through 6. When you truly embrace that we are sinners saved by the grace of God, the church will have little time for strife amongst itself. In verse 4, Paul reminds us to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Now, I've got a, you know, something to admit. You know, Pastor Sub preached this about two years ago. And he, he made sure to let us know what rejoice always means. And he went to the Greek, and he broke it down, and he said it means rejoice always. <laughs> that's what it means. And he said, it, I can't dance around it. Even though I don't like it, that's really what it means. It means to rejoice always. It's still funny, even two years later, right? It was good. When you truly understand how good God has been to you, what could you possibly be upset about? We need to be people who rejoice. Furthermore, when you understand that God has forgiven you and the priest and the person that you are in disagreement with, how can, how can you be mad at that person when God is no longer upset with them? We also see that we are called to be show our reasonableness or our gentleness. I listened to Tim Keller's sermon on this. Who's definitely in the book of life, right? And he gave the most eloquent understanding of this word. He said that it's a word that really cannot be described in the English language. And I'm not going to try to describe it to you. Maybe just listen to the sermon on your own. But he said that it is a, a radical fairness. A radical patience. While we think this word reasonableness... And it's not a great word. It really doesn't portray. Literally every translation translates this Greek word differently. But we, when we think reasonableness, we think somebody who's like, you know, Spock from Star Trek. Somebody who's just kind of cold and logical. But what we should really think of is somebody who is patient. Somebody who is long-suffering and forbearing. As we consider how Jesus has loved us, it should drive us to be more loving and more forgiving to others. Moreover, Paul entreats us to be reasonable with everyone. Not just reasonable to people you like. Not just reasonable to people you know. Not just reasonable to people who are reasonable with you. Be reasonable to people who don't agree with all of your political preferences. Be reasonable to people who don't look like you or talk like you or come from the same economic background as you. Be reasonable to everyone because God has been reasonable to you. Now the big 10,000 foot view here 
If we're going to talk about the epistemology of why we need to be reasonable, of why we need to forgive one another, of why we are growing into an excellent church, the big, big, big reason is that the Lord is at hand. Our salvation not only enables us to be joyful and gentle, it also frees us from anxiety. Why should we not be anxious? Not, why should we not fight with one another? Yodia and Syntyche are disputing because they are anxious about something. This is certain because all of our disputes come from some form of anxiety. We're worried about this. We're worried about that. So we're going to argue about it. For this reason, Paul reminds these blessed women that Jesus is not only here and present now through the Spirit, but he is coming in person again to make all things new. Whatever they are arguing about, Jesus is in control. Jesus is always in control. Jesus himself tells us in Mark chapter 1 that now after John was arrested, John had just been arrested, John the Baptist. This is what Jesus did. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the, in the gospel. He wasn't anxious about John because he knew the kingdom was coming. Moreover, in Matthew 28, Jesus also reminds us all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to Jesus. Because Jesus is in control, we can love those inside and outside the church. Because Jesus is in control, instead of arguing amongst ourselves, Christians can agree in the Lord by coming to God in prayer and thanksgiving. We can spend more time making our requests known to God and less time arguing about our requests with other fellow Christians. In his, John, in his commentary, John Calvin explains thanksgiving in this way. This is how John Calvin explains thanksgiving. As many often pray to God amiss, full of complaints or murmurings, as though they had just ground for accusing him. While others cannot brook delay if he does not immediately gratify their desires. Paul, on this account, conjoins thanksgiving with prayers. It is as though he had said that those things which are necessary for us ought to be desired by us from the Lord in such a way that we nevertheless subject our affections to his good pleasure and give thanks while presenting petitions. And this is what I want you to zero in on. And unquestionably, gratitude will have this effect upon us that the will of God will be the grand sum of our desires. The will of God will be the grand sum of our desires. What does that look like? My kids are picky eaters. And I consider myself to be a pretty good cook. So I, I will get in the kitchen in the mornings 
and I'll make pancakes from scratch and put blueberries on them and give them, you know, good maple syrup from Vermont that we bought in Vermont and brought down here. I will cook them the best omelet. I'll put it on their plate and they'll turn their nose up at it. And I'd be like, you don't know what you're missing out on. Like, this is going to be really good for you. If you would just eat it, you would like it. And every once in a while, they'll trust their daddy. And they'll take a bite. And they'll say, mmm. But do you know what I, look, I long for? I long for the day that I can put anything on their plate. And they'll just start scarfing it down because they know that their daddy loves them and he can cook. Where can Grace Church take the dive into God's will? Where can Grace Church make the will of God be the grand sum of our desires? The will of God be everything that we want. Everything that we hope for. Everything that we think about. What does that look like? The last thing we see is that in verse 7 and 8, we not only need to be a church that works and tarries together, a church that gives thanks together, but we need to be a church that thinks together. We need to be a church that thinks together. Now that Paul has established the big picture view of how the church is to grow, he now gives us some practical methodology. This is why you should do it, but this is, this is how practically this is going to work out every day in your life. He begins in verse 7, he says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. First of all, you need to know that the peace of God is way beyond anything that you can understand. It's way beyond you. It's way beyond your abilities. It's way beyond anything that you can generate or muster with your, you know, intelligence or wisdom or anything that you got up your sleeve. Our continued growth together requires the peace of God. It is the peace of God because it does not originate from anything that we do. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from how great our sermons are, our worship are, or any of those things, it comes from God. Paul adds that it surpasses all understanding. The peace of God is beyond our comprehension. It is miraculous. No one can write a self-help book on it. No psychologist could diagnose it. If a psychologist saw you with the peace of God, he wouldn't, know what to, he wouldn't know what to label it as. It wouldn't be in the DSM-5. You need to write another book about it. What makes this even greater is that Paul expects this not to just happen individually, but to happen across our community as a church. It would be amazing if just one person in here experienced the peace of God as Paul is describing it here. You would know that person. You would say, wow, there's something different about that guy. But Paul is saying that we can experience this as a congregation, as a whole. It's a, it's a marvelous idea. 
Now that we know what the peace of God is, what is its function? He says that the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds from the anxieties of this world. It is a barrier. It is a fortress. It is a stronghold from everything that's going to drag you down and drag you away from Jesus. It's a quiet place where we are not distracted from the glory of God. So how does the church maintain this peace? Paul gives us a list of attributes to think about. You want the peace of God? You want your hearts guarded from the troubles of the world? Think about these things. The first set of adjectives in verse 8 deals with our ethics. Paul begins with truth. He says, think about whatever is true. Of course, Paul begins with truth, right? Of course he does. Christian truth is always grounded in God's word. A church set in sola scriptural will always grow. Because it's not based on our opinion. It's not based on our culture. It's not based on what is cool or not cool. It's not based on what is trending. It's not based on anything that anybody says but God alone. There is no greater foundation. There is no greater constant for Christians who live in a world where opinions on everything can change with the tap of a smartphone. Think about the things that have changed in this world by somebody's tweet. The church is grounded in truth. Next, the church is to focus on honor and dignity. The church needs to be presentable. We don't need to be fake, but we need to be honorable. We need to be dignified. The church ought to be adorned. We, as we celebrate this Veterans Day, I want you to think of the church. You ever seen those soldiers? They got all those medals on them. They got the Medal of Honor. They got the Purple Heart. They got the presidential badge of, I don't even know all the honors, but I've seen some of these guys, and I'm impressed. The church should be adorned with the medals of love and peace, just as the, the armor of God that Paul speaks about. We are empowered to be brave, we are empowered to be dignified in a world that is quickly forgetting what dignity ever was. Moving on, it is just as essential for the church to be just. We need to be fair. We need to seek God's wisdom and attempt to see things as God would have us see things. We need to see things as they are, not as we want them to be, not as the world tells them as they, as what it is, but we need to see things as they are. We need to be fair. We need to reject evildoers and defend the oppressed. We need to stand up for what is right, whether we like it or not, and whether we win or lose in this world. The last thing in this set, Paul exhorts us to be pure. We all love purity. We need to be pure in our faith, pure in our speech, 
pure in our love, pure in our relationships, financially pure, pure by heart. Tim Keller says that there is an infinite amount of things that these adjectives could be attributed to, could be, you know, worked out in in our daily lives as Christians. But Paul continues this list. But he transitions from ethical concerns to a more aesthetic, you know, concentration. The apostle instructs us to think about what is lovely. To be a beautiful church. This is important because we serve a beautiful God and a beautiful Savior. Creation is beautiful. Redemption is marvelous. The church should be wonderful as well. Our worship should not only be done in decency and order, but also in a manner that is beautiful. Our musical worship ought to stir our souls. Our sermons ought to be eloquent and clear. Our communities need their church buildings to be beautiful and bring dignity to their streets. Our grass should look good. Our flowers should bloom in the spring. We should be bearers of the new heavens and the new earth that God is bringing our way. In every way possible, God has placed the church in the world to show the world a dying, polluted, dirty world what true beauty looks like. We are to demonstrate to the world that excellence does not come from man. Excellence comes from God. Do you know what is beautiful about our church? The multicultural church is beautiful. The fact that we are here from every corner of the world praising God together it is proof to everyone in our divided community that God is working a miracle in this church. When is the last time you have experienced the peace of God? Have you ever experienced the peace of God? And which of these areas in Paul's list can Grace Church continue to grow into a community more excellent by the power of Jesus. Where can your family grow into a more excellent family? Where can your workplace grow into a more excellent workplace by your faith in Jesus? So where do we end? Paul concludes his counseling session between Yodia and Syntyche with a comprehensive statement. He tells them to keep practicing. That's the bane of every high school guy. Just keep practicing. You on that piano? Just keep practicing. You can't make that shot? Just keep practicing. You can't do that math problem? Just keep practicing. He knows that he has given them a seemingly impossible task. Let's be real. No church or individual can embody 
all of those qualities on their own. However, he tells us the secret in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. With this simple and famous verse, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you want to be an excellent church, a perfect church? It can be done through Christ who strengthens us. We cannot be at perfect peace on our own. We cannot build a multicultural community on our own. We can build God's kingdom here in Dover through the power of Jesus. Isaiah speaks of this. He says in verse in chapter 26, he says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. It's God who keeps us in perfect peace. Because he trusts in you, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He has laid it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. God does it. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of my soul. Sounds like John Calvin, right? My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness in the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. O oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done all for us all our works. God has done it. Through the power of Jesus, God has done all our works. God has made us excellent. As we sit down together this week and celebrate Thanksgiving together as a church, God is bringing us together to experience the excellence and greatness of Jesus and slowly but surely become more and more like him. Through the power of the cross, God has ordained peace for us so that we can bring peace and hope to a world that desperately needs Jesus. Believe in Jesus today and thankfully enter into God's community and his perfect peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that it is not up to us to be excellent or perfect or just or lovely or righteous or truthful, but it is up to you. God, you have done it for us. Has your son died on the cross. He took our sins 
and gave us his perfect peace and righteousness. Father, I pray that we would be a church that is thankful and loving and comes together by the power of your perfect name. And in Christ's name I pray, amen.